this is a series of podcasts that are exploring some LGBTQ stories that tell us a little bit about life in England and Wales before the legalisation of homosexuality in 1967. My name's Tom Marshman and I made a show called Haunted Existence and I worked with Jeannie Sinclair on that project. In 1942, police began rounding up homosexuals in the small Welsh border town of Abergavenny. By the end of the year, one young man had thrown himself under a train, two more had tried but failed to kill themselves, and 24 had been brought to trial on charges ranging from corrupting youths to buggery and homosexual relationships between consenting adults i.e. gross indecency. Fourteen of their men, their lives effectively destroyed, were given prison sentence, ranging from 12 months to 10 years penal servitude. As a result of the scandal, for many years afterwards, Abergavenny was the butt of coarse jokes throughout South Wales. A man had only to bend over to tie his shoelace up for someone to say, you wouldn't get away with that in Abergavenny. So this is the story from Abergavenny, um, 1942. And um, I went to Chepstow to perform Haunted Existence and Jeannie went to the, to the archive and well, what, what did they say to you? Well, I went to Chepstow Museum and had a chat with a curator to start off with. And incredibly, she said, well, do you not know about the story that about what happened in Abergavenny in during during the war, and she said, "Well, someone's written a book about it," and so it, it's a remarkably similar case to the story in *A Haunted Existence*, although it's much darker and much grimmer than. than and it that. also, it's, it feels like it spirals out. I, yeah. thought, I thought that haunted existence spirals out a lot, but this one seems to really do so, and it's actually really hard to talk about it because yeah. there's so many subplots. Well, it's yeah, it's it's hard in two ways. It's hard because it's so complex and there's so many people involved, and it's also hard because it's so it's very upsetting and it's very complex in the sense that essentially it starts off in. In 1941, um, a man called Edwards was the manager of the YMCA in Abergavenny, and he's arrested for um, offences, sexual offences with children, essentially, from the ages of 12 to 15. And the following year, in 1942, uh, a man called Rowe, who's the manager of the, the cinema, um, is arrested again for offences against children. And, and these were young boys that were working in the cinema as page boys. Yeah, so they're 14, 15, 16. That, so, um, yeah, although, they, again, it's, a, it's, a really, it's essentially a case of child abuse and it's really problematic because what we find when we look back at the history and the um, some of the ideas around homosexuality... Um, before decriminalisation in 1967 is 
the idea that gay men are also paedophiles is really very common. And so there's no real distinction between um, ideas of paedophilia and homosexuality. Um, and that gay men will prey on young boys. And this case, um, that's why it's so complex and really... But this cinema manager, he mm. was, he, he basically had a circle of men around him that he would sort of solicit these young boys to. Yeah, there is that aspect to it. Um, and so there is a network of men who seem to, older men who seem to be um, preying on young boys. And um, it's complicated further by the fact that the boys in the court cases say that they've consented mm. um, as well, which, you know... I mean, they po possibly could have consented, but they were in fear of lots of things. So they could be fear of losing their job or they wanted to get yeah. money or... Like there was obviously blackmail situations going on. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, although they technically, they say they consented. I mean, as the law stands today, they, you know, anyone under 16 is not able to give their consent. So they can't legally consent anyway. And yeah, they're under pressure. I mean, most of them, it kind of, I think in some of the court cases, um, the boys often say, I consented. I didn't say no. You know, it's a typical of what you hear from most victims of child abuse. I, I didn't say no, but I didn't like it. And they felt that they were, and it's a small community as well, you know, they felt under pressure to um, to go along with this because it was the person that they worked for. So some a man in a position of authority. Um, but what we see from this, what then starts to happen is the same kind of effect that we see in the case of Jeffrey Patrick Will Williamson, where once one person is arrested, then the police then um, question people and ask them for names of other men. So what the issue is with this case is that you get a case that starts off with paedophilia, child abuse, which are obviously very serious offences that then lead to this kind of hysteria and paranoia where um, young men in consenting relationships are also then targeted and ultimately it leads to several suicides and attempted suicides and several other suicides in the area at around the same time that could also be linked to this case um the saddest one of the saddest stories and that we, you wouldn't be able to you couldn't actually you couldn't actually say Clearly they are because it might be men that would fear for their story coming out so they would kill themselves before anyone else. There was a, a whiff of it. Exactly. Yeah. That's, the, that's the suggestion is that these men were so in fear of being arrested or in fear of being found out that they took their own lives before mm. the police could arrest them. And I think that's something that I try to, to sort of pull out a little bit in the show is this idea of like inherited trauma of mm. living like living living that that fearful life mm. had such implications on like these men's health and their mm. view of their themselves and their attitude like i wonder how that is passed down to gay men of this generation like mm. whether it whether that 
can actually be passed down, that inherent sense of trauma Mm. can be passed down through communities, not just bloodlines. Absolutely. And I think this, the case is still has, I think it still resonates today. I mean, this is living memory, 1942. It's Mm. not that long ago. And um, I think it did a lot of real damage. And I think part of, I mean, one of the saddest stories is that um, there's a, a couple of young men who've left Abergavenny and gone to live in London so that they could live together and they are arrested and brought back to Abergavenny as part of the court case and a friend of theirs who is a baker he's 19 he's so concerned that he's going to get arrested and that he's in so much trouble that he takes his own life um, uh, by putting his head on the train tracks um and so horrible yeah he's a you know it's really it ruined people's lives Mm. and i think the it's just so frustrating that it's the way in which that these two things are conflated you know this idea of you know on one hand you've got serious crimes of child abuse and then Mm. on the other you've got um young men having Mm. consensual relationships or men Mm. not just young men men having consensual relationships Mm. and they're they're arrested for one offence. But But this kind of witch hunt Mm. didn't distinguish between, you know, the predatory paedophile and Mm. the kind of consenting, loving relationship of two gay men. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. And it's all mashed up Mm. in this awful Abigail story. I think that's one of the things that comes out as well when you um, listen to some of the evidence... um, that's presented that um, you know there's there's such hysteria and again it's going back to something we've discussed before about this kind of moral hysteria this mor- moralizing mm. hysteria that's kind of brought about during the war. This is coming. So this is yeah. This is be- before the war, isn't it? No, this is during the Second World War. So yeah. that's it's one of the interesting things that this you know there's a man is arrested for essentially having a drunken snog with two boys two like 16 and 17 year olds he's in his 30s and you know the boys are asking asked in court you know do you feel that this was gross indecency and they're just like no we were just horsing around you know it's just it's just horseplay um i don't feel um that anything terrible happened and some of these cases are kind of thrown out but i think it's the the kind of moral hysteria again that's brought about during wartime um there's a quote from a a a judge from 1953 so it's later on but that that idea of this post-war um desire for the health of the nation and you know if the if there's an issue with uh morality if it's individual morality is linked to um public morality these cases really are terrible This calendar, including the case I am taking now, shocks one. People must be taught that this sort of conduct cannot be tolerated. It is not only bad for the individual, but it is bad for the nation. So, yeah, I think that shows that there's this idea that um, that individual morality is very much linked to um, a kind of national morality. And if that breaks down then the the idea of the, the the whole nation you know the idea of britishness you know is is kind of um being eroded 
I think. Mm. There's a real anxiety around that. So the ca- the character that Will Young plays in Mrs Henderson Presents, have you seen mm-hmm. that film? I think so. Well, apparently that character, he was one of the men that would have these young men, like, introduced to or... Right. Yeah. Yeah. He was, like, based on a real actor that mm. I think had that scandal put over him. So for part of the workshops that we did at Chepstow that were funded by the Heritage Lottery, um, we went into Chepstow Comprehensive School and talked about this story, but also talked about um, the legalisation of homosexuality general generally. I think this ha- this story was quite hard to talk particularly to that group about. Mm. Um, what came from that was just that the the students were really surprised at the fact that the legalization of homosexuality like the total legalization mm. it being absolutely equal mm. only came in 2001 yeah that's what which is not that long before most of them were born yeah um so yeah i think they were quite shocked by that i think their level of engagement with the subject was really interesting and i think the some of the conversations that we had around the way that they don't judge people about sexuality or um, however they want to present their gender or um, those kinds of issues that that just don't seem to be a big deal for them for that generation which is really interesting and really because I think for me like going into schools I feel quite I still I feel quite fearful of them Mm. because of the kind of gay bullying that I experienced mm. as a as a as a young person. Yeah, and I mean, I think I think it was quite interesting because I think they said that it was still something that um you know, using um ideas of gender transgression or um gayness as a as a kind of insult. It was still you know, it still happens. It's, a bit it's of a not slur. perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. But um, I think it's quite heartening to kind of hear young people, the way that they talk about mm. these things. And I think, yeah, again, like talking, explaining to them that, that 1967, it wasn't legalisation, it was only partial decriminalisation. And actually, the age of consent wasn't lowered from 21 to 16 until 2001 was quite mm. shocking for them. And I think mm. it's, I, th- I still find it quite shocking that it took that long. Mm. And I think I remember when I was a teenager feeling like it would never happen. Mm. So, And I can remember, you know, that moment of, of having lived my life, like living between 16 and 21 mm. in a relationship and that being totally illegal. Mm. And then to that, for that to come through mm. um, was, was quite a big thing. Mm. Yeah, I think, yeah, it's huge. Um, but I think, yeah, it's it's much more normal for kids of that age to be sort of out and gay, yeah. you know, in their teens. And they spoke very freely about it. And, you know, we finished this session by making really beautiful posters mm. um, that became part of the pop-up exhibition that toured with me for the rest of the tour. So they were... You know, just a really, it just felt like a, a gathering of 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 support, and they mm. were part of that. Yeah, they they were really articulate and eloquent, and it was a really it was really interesting talking to them. 
one thing that um, I read in that book that I that chimed with me because I've obviously done lots of oral histories with different people, and when I did a show called Moving Move Over Darling in Bristol, I interviewed older older gay and lesbian people in Bristol, and this man told me a lot of about um, having sort of nude pictures of yourself or making up like erotic stories about themselves and just having them on pieces of paper that that would just circulate mm-hmm. um, amongst the community and I just really like this idea because you know these days often people do that with dick pics <laughs> <laughs> and, and then there was this idea that that's not a new thing no. really <laughs> that has just been going because this one man was telling me about the fact that he'd you know, had this sort of liaison in a Bristol hotel in, I think it must have been early 1960s. Mm-hmm. And in the picture, this guy had a full head of hair, but it was obviously he put a wig on for the photo. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's what's really interesting. It's like, again, it, that's how um, often uh, men used to meet each other or get in touch with each other was... Um, through the kind of small ads in, you mm. know, men looking for friendship and yeah. um, or um, around clubs and things. And I think, it you know, it's essentially, the, it's the same. It's just like a really slow... Analog version. Yeah, a really <laughs> slow analog version of, like, Grindr. Gator, yeah. yeah, whatever. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> and, um, yeah, it just makes it... T- everything takes a really long time mm. because you also have to write a letter to someone to sort of um, tent- very tentatively see if they might be interested in the same things as you. And mm. um, and and there was codes as well for that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Although, mm. I th- you know, again, it's I think it's tricky if you don't come from, you know, if you live in a rural area or in a small town where you don't know anyone else who's gay, mm. like how do you find those things out? Mm. And um, so I think it's really complicated and difficult and took ages, you know. But again, that like, people would circulate photographs and mm. um and things like that and um there were some interesting court cases in the hall uh hall carpenter archive about um people um distributing pornographic photos of young men mm. uh. so the most extraordinary thing happened kind of in Jepstow, but later on <clears throat> in battersea mm. was that actually jeffrey patrick williamson's cousin mm. now lives in Chepstow. Which and is a, a crazy kind yeah. of coincidence. And she heard about the fact that I was making a show about her cousin through flicking through the drill hall in Chepstow's theatre brochure and saw that there was a show about her cousin, but she'd missed it. It had happened, it would happened like a month before. So she dropped me an email and said that she was the cousin of Geoffrey Patrick Williamson. And I said, well... As it happens, I'm performing it in London this week. If you if you happen to find yourself in London, not really expecting that <laughs> I would see her. But after the second show, I came out of the dressing room, and this woman just came up to me and went, "I was Jeffrey Patrick Williamson's cousin," and I was just about to go into an after-show talk. So we had the very quickest conversation, but she talked about the fact that Jeffrey was actually used as a, what's the word, scapegoat or not? 
Um, as an informer. As an informer. Yeah. He mm. was used as an informer from a, quite a very early age, like mm. 14. And so the police were well aware of him and they were using him mm. um, in that way. And something that, that's the, something that really chimes with this Abergavenny story mm. is that those really young boys were used in that way to mm. sort of seek out um, the, the, the other men. Yeah, absolutely. That's a you know another thing that they have in common that um, it's really interesting that um, there's a boy of fifteen who's using him as an informer, um, and usually these young men were used as a uh, as a form of entrapment, mm. and it was a way of um, entrapping people. So not only um, have they potentially been abused by um, other older men, they're being abused by the police as well. And uh, uh, systematic abuse. Yeah. And it, I think that we probably had conversations about Jeffrey around that before, but we didn't mm. really know. We had this idea that maybe Jeffrey was, because Jeffrey, when arrested on mm. the train, he says, You may find these things morally wrong. I don't. Which is a, just a brilliant line. It makes me feel like mm. he was quite arrogant in a brilliant way mm. uh, but actually knowing that about him it kind of paints this different picture it changes the meaning of that quite a lot doesn't it mm. that it it just really comes across as someone who's really got to the point where they've had enough mm. of all of this stuff mm. you know and at 17 that's quite shocking yeah. really which I is think. why he emigrates yeah. eventually because and he must just have been so sick of that dark time yeah, exactly. And I just feel that um, I think the description that we get from John Duffy about um, uh, about what Jeffrey was like as an older man and being this kind of loud and big kind of larger than life character, it, it does make you feel like he, he obviously was a bit like, well, you know, screw you mm. <laughs> that, um, that I am who I am and um, I'm going to be whoever I want to be, and and going to Australia with John obviously allowed him to do that. So the, the Abergavenny Witch Hunt is a book. Like, it's fascinating to read. It's quite complicated to read. We, I don't feel like we we could do it justice, really, because it's so complex. Yeah. Um, but it, it's, it's worth finding out more about, I would say. It's written by William Cross, and I think mm. it was published in 2014. Mm. Um, and it's, yeah... I mean, it's it's a it's a complex read. It's a complex story with lots of different interweaving narratives and court cases, and um, it's hard sometimes to kind of tease out those different stories. Um, but um, yeah, it's an it's a very interesting case. Mm. So that sort of concludes our last episode. Um, with the Abergavenny witch hunts. Um, it's been great working with you as ever, Jeannie. Thanks, Tom. And you. <laughs> and um, I really hope that we can do more work together. Mm. I'm particularly drawn to finding out more um, about uh, Jenny Moore mm. um, in Newcastle. So hopefully there might be a new show in the making at some point. <laughs> yeah. Fabulous.